The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. So most of you know that for the past three months we've been offering some talks on um, what's called the Brahma Viharas in the Pali tradition. Um, it's a word that just means divine abodes or dwelling places. And so far we've spoken about loving kindness, compassion, and appreciative or sympathetic joy. Um, next week we'll continue with the last one, equanimity. But I thought for tonight's talk that I would aim it at offering some notes on the four Brahma Viharas. So sometimes we might consider these to be um, somewhat lofty attitudes about ethics um, that when practiced cultivate the wholesomeness for ourselves and for other beings. And the Buddha has said that these four are to be developed universally towards all beings without distinction, without discrimination towards all beings without discriminations, without distinctions. So that's a fairly tall order. <laughs> towards all beings. So how do we, how might we understand this or make sense of it? And I think one way to look at it is to consider that these four are interwoven um, they relate to each other, they balance each other, and when practiced, they allow us to live a life that approximates one without blame. And I love that phrase, uh, the bliss of blamelessness. To live without, or with the bliss of blamelessness, as the Buddha called it. Another way to perhaps uh, take a perspective on this in terms of that interweaving is to think of the concept of Indra's net, which is this web of interdependences and connections. And the amazing thing about this net, if you can visualize a net, at every knot in the web of this net is tied a pearl or a jewel and this jewel represents, the jewels represent everything that exists or has existed. And not only is every jewel tied to every other jewel, but the surface of, on the surface of every jewel is reflected every other jewel. Which sort of staggers the imagination. And to tie this back into these four divine abodes... Um, I'll just run through a, a little list of a way, uh, some ways in which they're tied together. So if you start with loving kindness, which is a kind of love that connects um, and that is an antidote to all forms of aversion, this loving kindness, however, is not attachment. It's never attachment. And if it should begin to slide into that, or into sentimentality, then another ab abode, that of compassion, brings the heart back into balance. Because compassion, the love that responds, the quivering of the heart in response to suffering, 
is an antidote to cruelty, but it is never pity. And if it begins to slide into that or sorrow, then appreciative joy or sympathetic joy can bring the heart back into some balance. And appreciative joy, which is a love that really celebrates the um, other beings, is the antidote to envy. And it's never competitive. And if it begins to slide in that direction, then equanimity might bring the heart back into some balance. And equanimity, the one we're going to talk about this month, next week, and three weeks from tonight, is the love that allows, is an antidote to partiality. And it, but it's never indifferent. And if it begins to slide into indifference or dif- disconnection, then loving kindness can bring the heart back into balance. So just a little representation, if you will, of how these four are interconnected and are cultivated together. They're not really separate entities, which is really true of all the Buddha's teachings. They're all interwoven. So how do we nurture these places of divinity, cultivate a wholesome ground of being and tilt toward the divine abiding Well, probably the first thing that we tend to forget is just to pause. (laughs) We get so caught up in this life that is tumbling forward that we forget to just stop, notice what's arising, stepping away from the frenetic and all the stuff that's pulling you forward and pushing you back. And so one of the things we do is we, we just stop and take note what's happening now and How am I responding to this? Can I be with this? It's not really a a rehashing of the news, which is tempting to do at times. Uh, But it's really an emotional awareness. What's going on inside, in here? And... In this realm, we're talking about everything from your, the daily busyness of your life and the anxiety that accompanies that at times to the larger events that impact um, strongly, maybe in larger numbers. Um, so it's everything from the death of a beloved one, uh, the violence of August 12th last year here in Charlottesville, Uh, terminal diagnosis or the onset of Alzheimer's or racism that infects us all. Everything is available for practice. Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist teacher that many of you have heard speak or read her books, She says, the only time we ever know what's really going on is when the rug's been pulled out and we can't find anywhere to land. We use these situations either to wake ourselves up or to put ourselves to sleep. Right now, in this very instant, 
of groundlessness is the seed of taking care of those who need our care and of discovering our own goodness. So I'll come back to that seed analogy and the discovering of our own goodness in a minute. But first I want to talk a little bit more about waking up. So we have this template, this pattern of pausing in this practice to reframe, to contemplate, to reflect. And it's a, I don't know, maybe a little bit of time on sacred ground in that pausing to reflect and notice. And some might say, if someone were to look in the door tonight, watching us in silence for minutes on end, that there's nothing going on here. (laughs) We're all just sitting in silence and stillness, that there's nothing happening. But what we know is, is that there's a lot going on. And in some ways, we are a bit like um, trees in the forest who are rooted in the ground, standing in stillness, but there is massive, massive things going on underground with metabolism and communication happening within and between trees in the forest. Um, Maybe you've heard of this book uh, written not too long ago, a few years ago, The Hidden Life of Trees by a a German forester whose name I won't attempt to pronounce. Um, But we learned some astonishing things about trees from his research. Here's a short excerpt. Trees live on a different time scale than we do. One of the oldest trees on the earth, a spruce in Sweden, is more than 9,500 years old, 115 times longer than the average human lifetime. So creatures uh, with such a luxury of time on their hands, (laughs) on their limbs, can afford to take things at a leisurely pace. The electrical impulses that pass through the roots of trees, for example, move at the slow rate of one-third of an inch per second. But why, might you ask, do trees pass electrical impulses? Why do they need this at all in their tissues? And the answer is that they need to communicate. And so electrical impulses are just one way that they do that. They also use the senses of smell and taste for communication. For example... A giraffe in Africa standing reaches into the tall leafy treetops of an acacia tree. The minute it begins to chew on the leaves, the tree releases a chemical into the air that signals that a threat is at hand for that tree. And as the chemical drifts through the air and reaches the other trees nearby, they, quote, smell it and are warned of the danger. And even before the giraffe moves to a tree nearby, these trees are beginning to secrete toxic chemicals to ward that giraffe away. So just like the silent still tree, when we pause, choosing to contemplate, to become aware of whatever is arising in this moment, There's a lot going on in the stillness. On the other hand, if we were to look outside, if you've looked in your yard or 
anywhere around with all the rain recently, there is visible growth. And so another metaphor perhaps is that we might think of the ground like a framework for a path of practice and ourselves as farmers planting seeds. But being a farmer, any gardeners out there, small-time farmers, past farmers, (laughs) okay, Uh, means that there's a kind of earthiness, a muddiness, and a messiness to life. The nature of the work with the earth always entails surprises, unexpected setbacks, and miracles. The critical role of weather as an uncontrollable force that just is, sometimes blessing, sometimes damning. Um, I grew up on a farm with poultry houses, um, with some cows, including a milk cow, and some sheep. And my sibs and I uh, packed, gathered and packed eggs on a regular basis um, every week, hundreds of them, we had thousands of them. Um, and have you ever done that? Like reached into the nest with a hen, a possessive hen setting on the nest, trying to retrieve eggs one at a time. Um, it's painstaking work and it's messy. Um, We had a Guernsey cow that I milked daily. And when it rained and the grass grew quickly and was tender green, I'll leave it to your imagination, while milking this cow, she stomping a foot in the mud and switching a tail loaded with mud and other material. It was messy. It is messy. And the orphan lambs, we bottle-fed those, and the milk dribbling down from the nipple of the bottle with saliva from the lamb's mouth. It's messy. It's messy. Not unlike sometimes the messiness of our minds, right? So welcome to the messy fields of cultivation. Farming or cultivating the mind have something in common, and that is they are not about making something happen. They are both about cultivating conditions, planting seeds, adding nutrients, or a little compost, pulling out the weeds, and then waiting, waiting to see what happens. It's really easy to get caught in wanting to control, to sort of force things a little bit, to create a desired outcome, something we're grasping for, the fruition of a seed that we really, really, really want. We're not in control. But if we have guarded and protected and nourished the wholesome as best we're able, we can wait for a sprout, a bloom, a little fruit and eventually the tiny seeds within that fruit that create ongoing growth so our work like that of the farmer is to cultivate the conditions for the fruition in this practice and so you might ask well um, you know what are what are a couple of things we could pay attention to in addition to pausing to remember um, one 
item might be something called ethical integrity. And a couple of teachers speak about moving it another step further, and that is the actual savoring of our ethical integrity, savoring it. It's so easy to, to dismiss it or not even really be aware of it because it becomes perhaps so ingrained as a, as a daily habit that we, we don't even notice how full of integrity we are. So the invitation is to notice your own integrity, your own goodness. So let's do a little practice right now. Just sit back in your seat, get comfortable. Allow your eyes to close if that's okay for you right now. Consider if there's any place in the body that may be a little tight or contracted. Invite a loosening in the forehead. In the mouth with the tongue. Softening the shoulders. The hands. The belly. The feet. I'm just breathing right now. The attention as light as the wings of a dragonfly. And bring to mind some goodness of yourself today. A way in which you did no harm. You might recall a, the place or a person or an animal to whom you offered a mm, kind gesture. A word. A hug or a smile. Could have been something that was brief and simple. Forgotten. And in this moment of remembering this goodness, this doing no harm, this kindness, can you abide in the feelings of this moment? Abide in the sensations in the body. Abide in the goodness of yourself. Savoring this moment of your ethical integrity in the heart and in the body.
also abiding in your own goodness, in your own ethical integrity. Just considering today, yesterday, last week, the ways in which you did no harm. When you spoke the truth, when you offered loving kindness to another being, two-legged or four-legged, don't miss the good in yourselves and in others. Savor it. So, in some ways, to abide in this ethical integrity is to experience that bliss of blamelessness. And then a second guideline for the cultivation of this practice might be to, um, as we did at the end of the guided meditation tonight, to practice for the benefit and well-being of everyone. Sometimes we get so caught up in our own lives, our own practice, uh, we, we forget that we are intimately, intricately tied to every being. Just in this room here tonight, we have an impact on each other. Um, probably we don't know how much impact we have on each other. So, somehow we have to remember that the way in which we are all woven together in this web of life and allow the heart to lead so that just a moment of intention to practice for the well-being of others can have a tendency to dispel some darkness, some anxiety, um, offer us some place um, of freedom. So one interesting question might be that when, when you do practice by yourself, um, what if you were to, at the beginning of it, just say, may this practice benefit all beings, including myself? How might that impact the practice? And at the end, you know, we, many of us do this bowing. Um, that might be a way in which to create a bit of ritual around may the merit of this sitting benefit all beings including myself and don't forget to include yourself so this notion that we really can't separate ourselves from others we are tied together the web with your family with your community with your colleagues at work with your nation we are tied together so the result of savoring our ethical integrity and this practice for all beings ourselves included we begin to incline the heart and the mind in the direction of the divine abodes even when we're not feeling particularly loving towards the rest of humanity <laughs> just to trust that this has power, this has possibility. Even on those days when you don't have much regard for the rest of humanity. 
which happens. So the outcome of any sit, any practice, has the possibility of reaching out so much farther than we can imagine. We don't know how a word spoken, a gesture offered, how it ripples out. Once the Buddha was asked um, by some of his followers, and they were discussing which is the greatest um, in terms of suffering. And so he turned around and asked the followers, well, what do you think? Which is greater, the stream of tears from weeping and wailing as you wandered along, united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable? Or are the waters of the four great oceans greater? And the response, the stream alone is greater than the water in the four oceans. So the stream of tears generated by being separated from the agreeable is greater than the water in the four oceans. So together, bound together in this web of life, bowing to those who've gone before us, our ancestors, teachers, and those who are on this path with us, these people sitting in the room here tonight with you, May the merit of this practice be for the well-being of all, ourselves included. Thank you for listening and for your practice. <laughs>